Praise the Lord. All right, it's good to be in the house with you all again tonight for Bible study. Want to take this opportunity to welcome those who are in the house, welcome those of you who are joining us online. If you think somebody might be interested in what we got to say, just go ahead on and send them to the website. They can click on the blue button and they'll be able to go to our online channel, jcim.online.church, or they can go to our YouTube channel, jcim.batonrouge. All right, we're going to see before we get started here tonight, we did get a praise report. They said that uh, Sister Carly was released Sunday evening from the hospital, and she's at home now. And uh, her blood pressure, I guess they're working on that, is stable enough to have her at home. So we want to say praise the Lord for that. And uh, we continue to pray with her and with her family and with everybody uh, in that situation. And God bless them for the new baby and all of that. So praise the Lord. I also want to take this opportunity to thank everybody that's here, uh, working back there, Sister Lori, Sister Aja, Sister Miranda, Sister Jazz, uh, that keep this place going on Wednesday night. Brother Sean over there watching the cameras and taking care of our business. So anyway, welcome everybody. We're going to go ahead and pray and see if we can get started tonight. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we just thank you for the opportunity again to come into your house. We thank you for the word of God and the opportunity again that you would lead us and guide us into your truth. Father, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are in the book of 1 John, and 1 John chapter 2 is where we're going to start tonight. Last week, we did 1 John chapter 1, and we got an opportunity to see what John uh, wanted us to understand regarding Jesus and his uh, message to us, the fact of his cleansing blood and how he cleanses all of us from sin, that if we say we have no sin, then we would be deceiving ourselves and that the truth would not be in us and that if we would confess our sins, God was faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we said we had no sin, the Bible said we would make him a liar, <clears throat> and his word was not in us. All right, so why don't we do this before we get started? Why don't we pray, and then we'll see if we can get into chapter 2. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we thank you again for the opportunity to come into your house and for the word of God. Father, we pray tonight and ask that the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in thy sight. And that what we study tonight might help us to grow in grace and in our knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray and ask that you would watch over everybody that's a part of this church family. And we just ask that you would lead us and guide us into your truth. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. I also want to just uh, shout out to Brother Lynch and his wife. They did tell me they were going to be out because they had to go on vacation. Uh, dedicated. I appreciate them for that. And, and uh, just kind of letting us know what was going on, because uh, sometimes we'll see them in on Wednesday as well. So we just wanted to say uh, hello to them if they're online watching, and um, I hope you're enjoying your vacation. Praise the Lord. All right, let's begin in chapter 2, and we're going to read tonight John, 1 John chapter 2, and we'll read verse 1 through 17, and then we'll work our way back through these verses. Um, not sure we'll get through them all. Maybe we will. Uh, we'll see how it works. All right, here we go. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. For whosoever keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him, or him self, also so to walk even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the father. 
I've written unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I've written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. All right, so let's start, if you will, at, uh, in chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. The Bible tells us here, uh, my little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Okay, so we begin in verse 1 with the understanding that John is writing definitely to believers. So he's not writing to people in the world. He's not writing to people that aren't saved. He's writing to saved believers. And he starts off with an understanding that he wants us to be clear that God does not want us to commit sin. He doesn't want us involved in sinful behavior and committing sin. He says, however, if any man does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, the word advocate actually means one who represents, a defender. Um, and what we don't want to do is somehow believe that every time we sin, Jesus has to be there begging God or advocating before God because somehow God is there angry and mad, wanting to strike everybody who commits sin. But we do have to understand that God's very nature rejects sin, and the Bible says that his nature calls for the wrath of God upon sin. So then the only way that God could appease his own wrath was by taking it out on Jesus, which is basically what happened. So now Jesus and his blood is now constantly flowing, if you will, for those of us who are believers. And so God, as he says, when he sees the blood, he'll pass over you, as he said with the Egyptians. The same thing with this, that those of us who have confessed Christ, which is why we said in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. But also now that if we sin, if we ask God to forgive us, we know that we have the blood of Jesus as our constant advocate, if you will. Not Jesus himself having to constantly stand up and go, oh, wait, Father, you know, that one committed sin, don't do this. Oh, wait, Father, don't do that. As much as we have a constant flow of the blood of Jesus flowing constantly and keeping us the advocacy, if you will. The righteousness of the blood of Jesus is constantly before God covering us when we confess our sin. Now, in verse 2, it says, And he is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, so we see then the word propitiation means that we are basically averting the wrath of God through propitiation. That's what the word means. It means that this is the offering itself for our sins. So since the wrath of God is what comes upon sin, then propitiation is the taking on, if you will, of the wrath of God, averting God's wrath for our sins. But the Bible says not just for us, but for the whole world. Now, what we don't want to think this teaches, like some churches teach, I mean, I don't know any person around here to do it, but there are some churches, you'll, you'll, you'll see them, they're called universal churches, and they teach what's called universalism. And they basically then believe that this verse says, when you read it, and he is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, if that's the case, then it doesn't matter what I'm doing. Jesus' sins take care of the whole world. But one of the things that, as I was studying that, um, you recognize is that the way John writes, many times you have to understand everything he wrote. So John has his uh, gospel. You have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So you kind of have to put them together. And I'm going to go to 1st John, I mean John chapter 1, verse 12. I didn't tell him that. This is the gospel of John, 
chapter 1, verse 12, and it's talking about Jesus, and it says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So here we see then that the Bible says, you know, the verse prior to that says he came to his own, his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So we understand then that believing on the name of Jesus, confessing and receiving Christ is the way that we obtain this propitiation for our sins. But if you think about it, Jesus was crucified over 2,000 years ago. So all of us that were born recently and in this generation, there's no way that Jesus, we could have been a part of this John 1.12 group. When Jesus came, they received him. The ones who received him, he granted them power to become the sons of God. Well, Jesus isn't here now. He died, he rose from the dead. 2,000 years later, here we are. But if the Bible says that if we hear the gospel, and if we confess our sins and believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, we shall be saved. By believing the gospel and receiving Christ, we then get this propitiation. This is what it means, not just for us, but for the whole world. So everyone who's died, everyone who's been born since Jesus died, every one of them had the opportunity to have the blood of Jesus play the propitiation or reduce the wrath of God in their life. Jesus doesn't have to keep dying. He doesn't have to go back to the cross again for everybody. He did it once, and the Bible says by once he put away sin. So now it's just up to people to receive Christ and to believe. So this is what this verse means, and it doesn't teach them this universal concept that everybody is saved. Um, <clears throat> then it would make no sense. Um, in fact, well, we'll get to it a little bit later when we see where John talks about, you know, if a man doesn't have Christ, he doesn't have the Father. And if he has the Father without the Son, he doesn't have the Father. You know, he's got to have the Son. You can have the Son, he says, and you have the Father. And you, you, you're not even in mentioning the Father point is that if you have the Son, the Son stands instead to get you to the Father. So it's important that we recognize that. Now, in verse 3, he says, and hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So now the question is, how do we know that we know Jesus? And the Bible says, and hereby we do know that we know him. How do we know if we keep his commandments. If we keep his commandments, that's how we know we know him. Now, the fact that we commit sin does not mean we don't know him. We already see where he said, I'm writing to you that you don't sin. But if you do, you have an advocate with the Father. And I won't get into too much about sins that we know we're about to do and sins maybe we didn't know we did and all that. It's really, I don't want to say it's not important. I want to say not to what I'm dealing with at the moment. The bottom line is that he writes to us that we not sin. But if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, he says, but hereby is how we know we know him, if we keep his commandments. Now, here, we know that we're not talking about the Ten Commandments, even though the Ten Commandments are important. All right, so people will say, well, so are you dismissing the Ten Commandments and saying we don't have to keep them? Not at all. When Jesus got asked the question, what's the greatest of the commandments? He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. He says, in all of this, these two things, hang all the law and the prophets. So everything in the law and the prophets hang on loving God with all your might, strength, your heart, and your neighbor as yourself. Because if you look at everything in the commandments, it's about your neighbors. Thou shalt not kill, steal, covet, or it's about the Lord. Don't take his name in vain. Don't have any idols. You know, um, make sure that you keep the Sabbath. So people will say, well, so we don't keep the Sabbath. What does that got to do with his commandments if we're not doing that? 
Well, Jesus made it plain in several different places. When he was walking around and doing stuff on the Sabbath day and they got upset, Jesus healed people on the Sabbath day, particularly to make it clear. Then he said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. So what Jesus stands for really is we are constantly in Sabbath. Jesus is our rest. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. He said, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the thing is that when we go to Christ, this is what God was trying to demonstrate when he said, thou shalt keep the Sabbath. Six days you work, one day you rest. And all was about observing and worshiping God. Whereas now, so you work in these six days and then you rest. Well, now what's happening is we've given up work. Work in the sense of working for our salvation. We're no longer working to get God's grace. We're no longer working to get God to forgive us. We no longer need to bring God a sacrifice of an animal or something and then work toward him uh, forgiving us. No, we rest in Christ. We know that we have peace with God because we have Christ. So now we rest. So, so the Sabbath, when somebody may say, well, Ten Commandments say keep the Sabbath. Y'all on Sunday, Sabbath is Saturday. All these things really miss the point because the reality is if people think about it, when Jesus rose on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, now we celebrate Jesus we do, we don't, some people call it Sabbath, but we usually worship Jesus on the first Sunday, I mean the first day of the week. And the Bible says that on the first day God said, let there be light. All these things are like shadows and types. So on the first day God says, let there be light. And on the first day, Jesus rose from the dead, the light of the world. He is the light of the world and now we rest in him because we don't need to rest on Saturday or any other day. We rest every day. So when we go to work, whatever we're doing, however we're living, we are in the rest of Sabbath, if you will, of Christ. So the commandments that he's talking about are the ones that Jesus gave us. He says we keep his commandments. Now, let's read a little bit further. He says, he that saith I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So if we don't keep his commandments, the Bible says we're a liar, truth ain't in us. You know, I've heard people say that to people. You know, you a liar, man, truth ain't in you. You know, that's a pretty hard accusation to make to people, you know. And so God says plainly if we don't keep his commandments, then we become a liar and his truth is not in us, right? So then he goes on and he says, But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. In other words, God's love being perfected in us, where we love one another, we love our neighbors, we love like we're supposed to as Christ has called us to. This happens when we keep his word, because by keeping his word, this is exactly what happens. We love our neighbors as ourselves. The love of God begins to be perfected in us. All of a sudden, we see Jesus where he says, you have heard, love your neighbors or your, 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 your neighbors, your friends, etc., and hate your enemies. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Wow. <laughs> so Jesus went beyond just loving those that are easy to love to making it clear that we as his people should be extending the love of Christ to the world. So anybody that we're running into, anybody we're dealing with, no matter what their problems, their concerns, their situations, we perfect the love of God in ourselves when we keep his commandments. And here again is how we know we're in him. You know, if you, and you can only assess yourself. You know, that's why we say when we do communion, we should kind of judge ourselves. So we look to see and ask ourselves the question during communion, you know, am I sitting here dealing with me and what's wrong in my mind, at least, with me and the things that I need to address in my life and the things that may present problems in my life where I'm judging myself? Or am I spending my time really more 
not judging other people even sitting there, but maybe in my life that's the way I do it. And because of that, I'm missing the point of what God wants me to understand as a believer. So he says then that he that saith he abide in him, this is verse 6, ought himself also to walk as even as he walked. So in other words, we're not excused from dealing with the people in the world that don't like God even. You know, if we're not careful, what the church can tend to do, our believers, is we can get kind of worthier than thou, holier than thou. Um, I don't do this, they do that. Y'all going to bust hell wide over me. You hear people say all kinds of things like that about people. And so we're always talking and basically judging other people and where they're going to go and what's wrong with them and all that kind of stuff. And God's like, look, I need you, if you're going to abide in him, in me, you ought to walk like I walk. So when the, when, you know, the most of the people you see Jesus attacking, and not that we should attack them at all, but were the self-righteous people, the Pharisees and Sadducees and people who were, thought themselves better than other people. The Bible says Jesus hung out with publicans and sinners and all kind of stuff, and that, that people were wondering, well, why would you even hang out with these people, right? Well, the bottom line is that Jesus said that he came to seek and to save that which was lost, and they that are well don't need a physician, but the sick. So his point was that, you know, people who are sick, who have sin, have problems, they are the ones who need help. Not all y'all. Obviously, you got it together. In one place, he says, if a person says they don't have sin, and then all of a sudden, they are found to have sin, Jesus said that sin is greater than any sin. You know, the bottom line is to say that I, I see when I really am blind. He says that blindness is even greater than if there's such thing as regular, being regular blind. But his point was that blindness is even greater. Verse 7 says, brethren, I write no new commandment unto you. Now, this is going to seem a little strange. Let me say that to start. This is going to seem a little strange, but we'll kind of walk our way through it and backwards. He says, brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. Okay, so in, on the one hand, he's saying, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but I'm writing a new commandment to you. So what is he talking about? Well, again, if we think about John and how he, he writes, it's almost like you have to know all of what he wrote at times. And in the book of John, he specifically deals with where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Now, although this commandment really goes all the way back to the book of Leviticus and other places where God said, love your neighbor. That's why Jesus said all the law hangs on this stuff. So it's really an old commandment in that sense. God's always been saying, love your neighbor. Don't commit adultery. Don't uh, do these different things. Yet they weren't able to do it. And so their failure to be able to do it is what brings about where we are now, where John is saying, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which you already heard from the beginning. And what does he mean, the beginning? He's talking about from the time, not only in Leviticus, when God said it, when he came down to the children of Israel, but also, if you go all the way back to the garden, when God asked Cain, where's your brother? And he's like, I'm, am I my brother's keeper? And he was like, yeah, basically you are. So you see then that this is not a new commandment. That's what he means when he says, um, put, put verse 7 back up. This is what he means when he says, brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. You've been hearing it from the very beginning, either from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, from the beginning of the garden, from the beginning of the law, Love your neighbor. Verse 8, but he says, again, a new commandment I write unto you. Because Jesus said when he was leaving, a new commandment I give unto you. Now, so you had the Ten Commandments, but now he's saying, look, let me break this down completely so y'all understand. A new commandment I'm giving to you. That you love one another. This is what Jesus said. He was trying to make it clear. You're not going to be able to fulfill the law 
apart from the love of God for each other. Other than that, it's kind of waste and pointless. So you have to wonder about many of the churches at times, you know, some of the things that go on sometimes in organizations and churches. Because many people are offended by things, and many people get upset, and many people leave, and just things happen, and there's church splits and crazy things that happen all the time in church. When people are fail to recognize that God has called us to love one another. And so when we do that and we put the love of God above everything else, we are able to walk through and keep the unity of the spirit, which is what the Bible calls for in the bond of peace, it says. So when he says, again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. So remember what the Bible says. Remember in John, let's go back. That's why I love, well, I love the whole Bible, but I love John too. Because it just everything, so when people start telling you the Bible don't, doesn't go together, and doesn't, if you just stay with it, you'll see how it just, it, it brings itself together. I'm going to go to the Gospel of John. I didn't give them these scriptures, but this is Gospel of John, chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse um, 1 through 9. This is John's Gospel, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1 through 9. And, and we're going to see here where John basically reiterates what he just said. The darkness is past and the true light now shines. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. All right. So now we go back to this verse and we see again a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. Bottom line is that Jesus came into the world, the light of the world. He said, I am the light of the world. <laughs> Here I am. Darkness didn't conceive it, but that don't matter. The light has come. And John is saying the light has shined into the world now we see it, we know what the Father expects and who he is. This is the light that has now come. So no more, you know, most of the time when you listen to people uh, talking about other religions and other things they're talking about and different things that get to God and all this, it always is so confusing because there's no light around it. It, it, it leaves you obscured, it leaves you in darkness, it leaves you looking for angels and, and, and crystals and, and other powers and, and spirits and, and, and things to get you to God. And you're waiting on some dream or you're waiting, you know, there's always something to, before you get to God. And people put all these mediaries in between and all these other things to get to God. You know, there's this kind of magic that's going on, you know, some stirring a potion, you know, whatever they're doing to get to God, you know, the, the nine steps to this or the eight to that and the whatever. When Jesus said, look, hold up, here's the deal. I'm in the world, I'm going to show you the Father. That's why he told Philip, why, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why are you asking? Show me the Father. And it's so amazing to watch Jesus operate. How, I think I said this Sunday, how there were times when Jesus walked up to somebody who did not ask him for anything and raised a kid from the dead. Because as he sees the funeral procession coming, sees the sadness and the, the, the grief, the Bible says he stops in the middle of that and works a miracle without anyone asking him to do it. This is God demonstrating his love and how he feels about what's happening with us. We saw it with Lazarus. When Lazarus died and Jesus on purpose let him stay dead long enough that in the Jews' world, corruption had set in. He'd been in the ground three days. Jesus showed up on the fourth day. And when he said, remove the stone, he said, they said, Lord, by now he stinketh. And Jesus said, take the stone away. Didn't I tell you? Uh, if you believe in me, you see your brother again. And Jesus called him forth. So we see then this light of God. 
We see God interacting with different people so that we know what God's expectation is. We know that Jesus said that when you see the least of these, you see him. When you see people on the street, you see him. When you see people in prison, you see him. When you see people in the hospital, you see him. God's making it clear. He's up there. He don't need you to visit him. You know, he doesn't need you to help him with anything. God's up there. God needs us to love one another, help what we see, right? The light has shined. This is what John is saying. He says, now I'm telling you, the true light is now shining. And then he goes into the next verse, verse 9. He that saith he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. So he makes it clear. You cannot say you're in the light and you hate your brother. Later on, we're going to see where he begins to say that people who are like this are basically of the devil. <laughs> it's just simple as that. They're of the evil one. They're, they're, the, they're, they're the one like Cain who slew Abel. He says the bottom line is that if you say you're in the light, and that word hate doesn't just mean, you know, like we think of hate. I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. The, the word hate can also mean love less. So that's what the word means when God says he loved Jacob and he hated Esau. It doesn't mean he hated him like that. It means he loved him less, whatever that means. It's a less was going on in that situation. There was something about Jacob that God wanted to do, less so much as it related to Esau. He didn't just, because you can see where Jacob blessed Esau. You know, he blessed him and said, you'll break your brother's yoke off your neck eventually. You know, he blessed him. But I do believe that many times people get that his story even mixed up. And we're going to talk about it in reference to this. They get that story mixed up a little, I think, only because the Bible keeps asserting that Esau was like a fornicator. The Bible says Esau sold his birthright. He despised his birthright. Now, typically the birthright is your ability to get blessed as the firstborn. That's your birthright. But when he came out of the wilderness one day and he said he was famished and he was going to pass out and die, and Jacob had some porridge and he says, hey man, give me some of that porridge. I'm going to die. And Jacob said, hey, sell me your birthright. Now, some people say that's a hard bargain to do that. That's really not the point, though. He sold it to him. Well, when it came time that his father said, it's time for me to die, go out, make me some venison, and come back so I can bless you. He didn't say, Dad, actually, um, you need to call Jacob. Why? Well, I sold you my birthright to Jacob. He didn't do that. He went out to go get the venison. It was Jacob's mother. I mean, uh... Uh, well, yeah, Jacob's mother, Rachel, who said, go, because I'm thinking about Isaac. <laughs> I was trying to figure out, who oh, Isaac? Yeah, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob's mother who said, do this for me, son. Go out and get some stuff to put on your skin and make it hairy. I'm going to mix up some good food and make it smell like venison and taste like it for your father. And you go in and get that blessing. And his response to her was, basically, are you crazy? What if my father rubs me or hears my voice and says, you're not Esau, you're Jacob, and curses me? She said, let his curse be on me. That's what she said. She took the curse if he had one at all. So he goes in, and he feels him, and he smells, and he says, you know, you, you feel like Esau, but you sound like Jacob. And he said... Well, okay. And he went on and he blessed. Well, then not long after he left, Esau shows up. Then he says, well, who are you? And he says, I'm Esau. And, and the Bible says Jacob trembled because he was like, well. And this is how we realize how much serious these people take their faith. He said, man, I don't have nothing left to give you. I mean, you know, we, we never think, <laughs> we don't ever think of it like that. You know, his daddy took serious the prayer he had put on his brother that he was like, Son, I ain't got nothing to give you. They say he wept. And the Bible even talks about the Hebrews that even though he wept, there was nothing for him, right? And then finally his father turned and prayed a prayer over him and at some point said he would break the yoke off of, you know, uh, his brother's neck. And he turned it. But we see here then that 
that hate that God had or that lo less love he had was kind of tied to what probably the way Esau handled his business with Jacob, you know. And he preferred then uh, Jacob uh, over Esau, the younger, over the elder. But at the same time, there's a deeper story. We don't know it all. But we do understand that when God uses this term, we need to understand that God is not expecting us to get away with loving less. I guess that's the point I'm going to make. I may not hate you like that. You know the way people talk about hate. <laughs> but I don't love you like that neither, you know. I mean, not really. I'm not, I don't have the love of God that I ought to have toward you maybe as a believer. So I don't hate you, I think, but that's what this word means. He that hates his brother is in darkness even until now. If I can't love my brother, then how can I say I love God? You look at verse 10, he says, He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there's none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whether he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you, and for his name's sake. So he begins then now to walk through a series of the people he's addressing and trying to get them to see where they fit into the church itself and into the brotherhood of Christ. He says, I've written unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. Now, in other words, when they usually when they talk about fathers, they were referring to the elders of the church at that time. Most of them, many of them had actually known Jesus. They either knew him through direct contact with him, because John is writing, and John was, John died, he was the last of the apostles to die, but there were people who had, were alive when Jesus was alive while he was writing this. Those people were typically the ones he referred to as fathers, the fathers in the faith, fathers. Because he says, I'm writing to you because you have known him that is from the beginning. So you've seen him. You saw him operate. You know how he operates. So I need you to understand this because what was happening during John's time, just like ours, but and ours is probably way worse, but the fact that it was happening then ought to tell you ours is probably way worse, and that is that there was a lot of false teaching going on, a lot of uh, people pursuing all the wrong things, um, just a lot of stuff that concern John. So in his writing, he's writing and says to the fathers, I need you to understand as I'm writing to you all, y'all knew Jesus from the beginning. And you know this is not the things I'm about to discuss, hating your brother or loving the world. These things are not what Jesus taught. This is not what Jesus was about. And you know that. You should know it because you were with him from the beginning. Then he says, I have written unto you, young men, because you're strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the wicked one. So he's saying the younger generation of believers who may not have directly known Christ, but who took on the gospel message and believed and received the Holy Ghost and were deep in their walk with God and all, his point is, I'm writing to you because you guys are strong. God's word abides in you, and you've overcome the devil. Now, you're walking in the power of God. You're believing God. You are uh, studying and showing yourself approved and rightly dividing the word. You know, that's, I'm writing to you because I need you also to understand all of this together requires us, though, to love our brothers and make sure that we keep that in the utmost. Because a lot of what was going on, like I said then, not only was a lot of false doctrine being taught, a lot of other things happening. Um, there was a lot of persecution going on. Uh, some people were upset with people who had gone backwards and had um, walked away from the faith. So there was a lot of tension at times, and just lots of things going on. And I think John was very concerned that everybody keep that uppermost in their minds. Now then we get to verse 15. He says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, you can't really get much plainer than that. Um, and we understand that he's not talking about people when he says love not the world. Because 
Remember, we just read back here. Let's go back to the verse we said doesn't teach universalism, but teaches that Jesus died. You see John 2, verse 2. Remember when we did this one? And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So then we know then that if he's died for the sins of the whole world, then we know then that what? Love not the world doesn't mean don't love the people. That can't be what he's talking about. He says, and the propitiation for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then we go back and he says, love not the world. Well, we know that's not what he's talking about. He's already told us, love your neighbor as yourself. That was the light. So surely the world he's talking about is not the people. Now, we see again, even in James, we'll go over to James. I didn't give him these verse, but I'm sure they'll get to it right quick with that quick verse. James chapter 4 uh, verse 1 through 4. James chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. James chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. It says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Remember now we're fighting. We're not loving each other. Come they not hence even of your lust, that war in your members. Now keep that word in your mind, lust. You lust and you don't have. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own desires. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So now we see James reiterating that we make ourselves an enemy of God by being a friend of the world. But we know then again he's not talking about the people. Now, when we go back to 1 John Two and back to verse 15, he says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. All right, so we understand when he says, love not the world, we're not talking about the people, we're talking about the system. Love not the world, this system of how it functions and how it operates, nor the things that are in it. All right, because he says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in it, which tells you how God feels about the system. He, 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 he hates the system. God despises the system because the system is actually satanic. It, it was built on satanic principles. Satan is the one that's operating it. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. So the bottom line is that all of this stuff that's occurring, we understand, is not God. But it is the world, but we have to operate in the world. All right? So we understand we're in it, but we're not of it. So we're not to love the world or the things in it. And then he goes on to say to us, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, remember what I said in James. I said, remember, keep your eye on that word lust. So you see here what he says, for all that is in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. So let's go back to James, right quick again, the James, the verses we looked at in James. Let's look at them again. We were looking at James chapter 4, and we were looking at verse 1 through 4. But we're going to concentrate here. See what it says, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust, that war in your members you lust, have not, you kill, and desire to have, you cannot obtain. You ask and receive not, because you ask and miss, you may consume it upon your lust. So when we go back to where we just were, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, for all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, Pride of life is not the father, but of the world. So James and John are speaking kind of in tandem with each other, whereas he's telling them to love not the world nor the things in it. For all that's in the world, all the lust that the world generates is not of the father. So the reason y'all fighting each other and having all these problems is because of these lusts of the world that are dominating you. And if these lusts in the world dominate you, you're not 
loving the Father like you should, and you're making yourself an enemy of God. Like James said, you become an enemy of God, and we don't want to be God's enemy. So the bottom line is that we've got to understand what's going on with this, and he says, and the world passes away in the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. So the will of God, he's just told us, the will of God is to love one another. This is why Paul was kind of getting on uh, the Corinthians when he was saying, why do y'all go to war, court with each other? Y'all don't have some believers in there that can judge between you all to kind of fix your problem? Why are you going before unbelievers to resolve issues that need to be resolved within the church? Y'all don't have some wise people in there that can resolve your issues? Instead, y'all fighting and going to war and the law in front of unbelievers, he says. And so what kind of testimony does that give? You know? So in all of that, we see then this constant discussion about the world itself. Now, I thought that I wouldn't get here, but I'm going to go ahead to the next verse because I want to tie this in now that I'm here. Verse 18 says, and I'm going to let them get it because I told them I'd do 1 to 17. I wasn't sure I was in because there's a lot to grind through here. But I'm going I'm I'm to deal with a couple more verses, at least 18, maybe through 20. I don't know, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tie 18 back in. 18 says, little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. All right, so now, if you recall, right now we talk a lot about the Antichrist. You know, people are talking about the Antichrist, and uh, he's coming back to the world, and the mark of the beast, they got movies about it. There are all kinds of things out there, right? What's interesting about this is, John tries to make it clear to people that you heard that Antichrist was coming. He says, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Now, sometimes when people read Antichrist, they think what the word means, because this is about the only place you see it. John's the only one who really uses the term Antichrist a lot in his writings. The term doesn't mean opposite Christ. It means basically other than Christ. When you see the word antichrist, it really means anything other than Christ. It's antichrist. It's not like positive and negative, yin and yang and all that kind of stuff people talk about. It's not like that. It's not like the antichrist is going to be totally opposite of Jesus in terms of what he did. This is why the Bible says he'll work miracles and He'll do things. He'll look like Christ, but he's not. He's other than Christ. He's going to be something other than Christ. And so every time the world got involved in different, this is why he says, even now are there many antichrists, whereby we know it's the last time. Now, people say, well, like, they always say, man, we know we're in the last days. Well, <laughs> let me say this. The last days started when Jesus rose from the dead. That was the beginning of the last days, because if you read the Bible, there's constantly, this is what James just said, we know it's the last time. This is it. This, this time we're in is the last of the times, that when God wraps it up this time, whenever he does, and it makes sense that it would take to us long, because the Bible says that to God, a thousand years is like a day. So that means Jesus ain't been gone but two days as far as God is concerned. We might think it's been a long time, and God tells us in the book, don't count my patience as, you know, slack, because I'm really trying to give everybody a chance. And, and, and you know, you got to wonder what goes on with God. I don't know. I don't, I don't really know. But it would seem that his, his saying that don't count his patience as slackness it would seem to me that every time somebody's born and every time you have people that are here, it would seem that God would be doing like he did with Sodom. You know, Abraham said, will the judge of the whole earth do right? And he started with 50 and worked God all the way down to 10. And when it was over, God didn't spare the city, but he did take Lot out. You know, because God didn't promise to get Lot. God asked him, he asked him, will the judge of the whole earth do right? 
Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And he says, peradventure, they're 50 there. Will you spare the city? God said, if I find 50, I'll spare it. He says, okay, how about 45? 45, I'll spare it. Okay, wait, 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 wait. How about 40? 40, I'll do it. Wait, 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 wait. How about 35? All the way down to 10. I believe he went to one. Maybe he just got, figured he might not want to press God. Because one would have got locked, maybe, and he might have spared the city. Who knows? But he didn't go beyond, below 10, and God said, oh, fine. And if you go look, Lot couldn't even get his son-in-laws to leave. I mean, so he got his two daughters and his wife, and the angels had to snatch them and say, let's go. And the wife even looked back. And, and, and so there was really only three that got out of there. So we see then that anything other than Christ, we're going to see what this Antichrist spirit acting like Christ, performing miracles, doing things, maybe bringing world peace, they say. All the things that if you think about the world right now, that's what they need. There was a man, I can't remember which head of the UN, many, many years ago, but within my lifetime. And it may have been within the last 20 years. He made a speech at the UN, and basically what he said was, the world is basically going to heck. What we need right now is a, a leader, a powerful leader who can bring the world together. Be he man, God, or devil. It doesn't matter. We basically need him. So now you're basically ushering in anything that will bring about what you think. Imagine somebody who could bring peace to the Ukraine and the Russia, and real peace, peace to Israel and the Arabs and all that. Nobody would want to listen to nothing we were saying if we told them, stop, this man ain't from God. You're going to sound like you're crazy. Peace, miracles. Okay, y'all, that's what's wrong with y'all. Y'all have always been the problem. You Christians, we need to get rid of y'all. And that's what sets up the purge, if you will, of Christians because we are the ones who understand and we're trying to shine the light on what's happening, but the whole world is rejecting it because of this other Christ, other than Christ. It doesn't mean, and they're going to say he's the Christ. How can he not be the Christ? How can he not be the Messiah sent from God? Look at what he was able to do. Look at the miracles. Look at the peace. Look at everything. Jesus, you're talking about, we ain't seen him in 2,000 years, and nobody even knows if he's real, and he died and left this raggedy bunch y'all call the church. Why should we accept that? And see, it's, it's, it's like a big setup almost, and I don't think God intends to set it up this way, but Jesus said this is what it would be like as time went on that the church, he said that you would have growing out there, you'd have like, you have the, the um, goats and the sheep, you have the tares and the wheat. And he says, don't tap, pick up anything. Just wait. At the end of the world, the angels will come. They'll gather up all the tares, bind them up, and burn them. And then God will gather his wheat and put it in his barn. He says, but so in other words, let them grow together. So the world, it's a, it's a very, because I don't want to use the word scary. I don't think that's the right word because that wouldn't be it. God told us, don't be fearful. Don't have a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. But it's very, very disconcerting, maybe I'll put it that way, that you could have a world that's spiraling so much out of control with all the things and problems we have. Like even now, you know, with what they just did, I mentioned it Sunday, but now it's gone to the next level, you know, where they basically have removed the Speaker of the House. And so the party that's in the majority now doesn't have a leader running the House. And until they elect one, the house is basically shut down. They can't really get nothing done. Well, you think it was a problem with the government shut down when they had a leader. Now, the fact that they don't have a leader in the next 45 days, if they don't get one, the government's actually, it will shut down. And all of the things that we were looking forward to can't get done. And this is what's interesting, that when you have politics overriding the well-being of the country. Because right now, you don't have another election for Congress, I think, until next year. So that means then you could, you could have a government shut down. I know this sounds crazy, but you could have a government shut down for months. 
And that is going to be the spiraling effect because all of the markets are going to react because the, the United States was always seen as the place you want to be, the place you want your money, the place you want everything because it was safe, it had a functioning government, and everything you, you knew was going to work out a certain way. Not anymore. And I think that as the rating agencies are looking, other countries are looking, you're throwing the world under the bus by, with this political move that makes absolutely no sense at all. If everybody was just honest with themselves, they could recognize we're never going to pay off $33 trillion anyway. So what's wrong with spending another trillion? It's just the truth. I mean, I hate to say it, but you're never going to pay off 33. So if you shut down the system that works, I mean, I don't know what you're doing. It, 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 I don't know. Some of y'all may have seen the, <laughs> this is kind of a light side of this. Um, it was a scene in the Ghostbusters. And they, they had caught all these ghosts and put them in this machine that supposedly holds all these spirits, right? And the city inspector came in and basically said, I want you to shut this machine down. And the guy said, you don't want to do that. And he says, I said, shut it down. And then the guy stepped in and said, don't do that. And the guy says, are you standing in my way? Shut it down. So he shuts it down, and all of a sudden it goes, and then you hear, and they're like, man, you better get out of here before it blows. And when it blows, basically what happens is all these spirits that they had captured just go loose everywhere, right? Spirits just running all over the place. To me, that's kind of what we're talking about. The United States has a functioning kind of government. Everybody's running, crossing the border. They're not crossing the border because they want to go to the Banana Republic. They're crossing the border because they're trying to come to a stable country where they can get a job and maybe do what? Make, make it big in their life, you know? Um, get their own roofing company. Who knows what they might do, right? But if you come in here and the government ain't functioning, then you get major chaos breaking down all over the place, and what do you have? So now we're in a situation where if you can get somebody who can bring about peace to all of that, we, we don't stand a chance in trying to convince people that you know, the word we have is true. You know, they, it's hard enough now to get them to believe it, and that's why God made the conditions up there about don't love the world, because if you love the world and the things in it, and all of a sudden the world begins to spiral out in a different direction, you end up like Lot's wife. You know, you're so busy looking back at what you wanted so bad your life to be. I was reading an article today, and I, as I read it, I was reading a, a commentary, actually. And as I was reading it, I thought, I understand what you're saying, but I don't even, I don't even see why that matters. You know, I mean, maybe back in the day, maybe I would have even thought it. And he was saying that, you know, if you, if you don't, if you miss God and you don't, get Christ in your life, you can end up missing out on the best life that God wants you to have. You know, you won't be able to have a good marriage, and you won't be able to have a good job, and you won't be able to this and that. And there's all these things he listed in terms of, you know, your life with God. And the whole time I was reading it, I kept thinking, man, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I guess these things are okay. We want them. Nobody wants to. I'm not going to come in here and preach to y'all, hey, go home and, you know, have a bad life. I'm not going to do that. But at the same time, you realize that we want to be able to say to ourselves, make sure you hold tightly to Christ because the world is passing away and the things in it, and we don't know when the thing might go up like Sodom. And we don't want to be snatched out. God has snatched us out, and we turn and look back and end up like Lot's wife. Jesus said it plainly. He said, remember Lot's wife. And so if everything that's in the world, if my whole life has been driven by a gospel that says, oh, I can be the best this and I can be the best that, but it's in their system, then that means that when their system begins to collapse, then my, my dreams collapse, my life collapse, everything about what I want collapse, and I don't know how to let it go, and I look back, and the next thing you know, bam, I'm caught in it as well. Instead of like Jesus said, flee to the mountains because this thing is gone. It's going to be destroyed. You got to know this and kind of... Um, wear the world loosely, like we say. You know, there are a lot of people who say, you know, they'll say, I don't love the world. You know, I don't love my stuff. You know, but try to take their stuff, and <laughs> you, you, you're going to find out. <laughs> so so I, I, I would beseech you, each of you, and I'm sure you all are, is, you know, to just give thought to, 
to that and to realize that, you know, uh, we are in that last time and that there is a spirit of Antichrist already, irrespective of the fact that the Antichrist, as we think, has not yet appeared that way, uh, but be cognizant that this spirit is on the world already. So let's pray, and next week we'll keep going here in John, 1 John. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you again for the opportunity to come into your house. We thank you for the word of God, and we pray and ask tonight that the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in thy sight. Father, we just thank you for the word. I thank you for everybody that's here and everybody that was online tonight. Bless them in their lives. Bless them in their relationship with Jesus. Help them, Father, to grow in faith and grace. And help us, Father, to love one another as you've asked us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.